this beach. It's not hard to imagine if you actually, did you see that thing in the sky this morning? It's round and it actually was shining. I haven't seen it for so long. I kind of forgot what it was and we were walking across the lobby and a couple of us were squinting this morning as the sunlight was shining in. So this beach, it's beautiful and clean and sandy and there's this little child building this castle. I mean, it's not just a a casual castle. It's like the castle of all castles. And it's beautiful, and it's getting bigger and bigger, and it's got this great big wall around it, and it's got a moat, and it's got all the things that you think the best sand castle could ever have. This little kid stands up and looks at it and is so, so proud. Problem is, this little kid has a big brother. The big brother has this look on his face, and you can know, you can tell, you already know what's going to happen. And this big brother takes a bucket of water, and it was hours in the making, and pride on the face. And within just a few seconds, the wall is crumbling, the city that he made inside the wall is now in utter destruction. And even though that kind of seems somewhat trivial in our memories now, the reality is many of us have spent years building within our own selves our own city and building our own wall. And some of it great, some of it such amazing work, some of it what God has been able to see and use and bless. And then it seems there are times when in just a moment, a bucket of water can come over what we have built and what we have allowed God to build and what we have seen as a great blessing can be an utter destruction. For many of us, that wall and that beautiful city might represent hopes and dreams, might represent plans and aspirations, might represent investments of time and energy and finances. And so what do we do? When we look and we see the wall that we have built, when we see the city within ourselves that we have seen and allowed God to build, what do we do when we see that in a condition of destruction? I think for many of us this morning, We have either had or will have or are having at this moment experiences like that. When what we thought was safe and secure, when what we thought was stable and surrounding us with comfort can so easily be taken away. And so we're headed to the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a fantastic book. As you're turning there in your Word or as you're going on your smartphone and you're looking at uh, the YouVersion app, just find us, Journey Church, and you will uh, find it if you're at. It should come up automatically. If you have our, are having trouble finding, go to our Facebook page or our Facebook group and you'll be able to find the link there as well. And I tweeted it on my own Twitter account. If you're following me, you'll be able to find it. If you brought your actual Bible, this is good too, right? And like I said, this is, this is paper and you can turn it and it's right there. I, I like this because I can actually mark in it a whole lot easier than I can on, on my phone. So as you're turning there, kind of the bit of the background, 
the Jewish people were in exile in Babylon and several kings kind of taking over and nations taking over, but they were still in exile. And then some of them were allowed to go home and they were allowed to come to their own country and begin to rebuild some things. And they, they rebuilt the altar and they were trying to rebuild the temple, even though the temple was a shadow of its original magnificence. And so it is at both this time, around the time of Queen Esther... that Nehemiah comes into play. The very first chapter, the first couple of verses, the words of Nehemiah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. He wanted a report What's it like at home? Have you ever been away from home for an extended period of time? Not just maybe a couple of months, but have you ever been away from home maybe for a few years? And you want that report. What's it like at home? And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Home isn't what you remember it, Nehemiah. Home is in sad shape. Home has been ransacked. Home has been destroyed. Home is in a state of disrepair. That great city of Jerusalem is not what you remembered. And they said to me in verse 3, that it is broken down and they have been burned, those gates, with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So what did Nehemiah do when he heard the news that home was not like it was supposed to be? Home was not the great memory that he had in his mind. Instead of getting angry, instead of doing the things that maybe some of us would do, Nehemiah sat down and he mourned and he wept and he prayed and he fasted. And I think for us that should be a really good indicator of how we should respond when life throws us that curveball, when life throws us something that we weren't expecting, and we find ourselves in ruin. You see, for me, my first initial is I just want to go fix it. I want to make sure that everything is... And Nehemiah gets there eventually, but his first response was to sit down and to grieve and to weep and to mourn and to fast and to pray. Nehemiah knew where to turn when things went sour, and he turned to God. And you're going to see at least seven extremely crucial prayers in the book of Nehemiah when action may have been different had he not prayed. I want to share his process with you, and I just want to share the story intermittent with some editorial remarks. And his prayer, what a beautiful prayer. Because for me, again, here's what I would pray. Lord, those people have, who have ransacked my wall and ruined my city, would you like cause boils to get all over them and, 
and would you kind of just mess their hair up and, and cause them to just have a horrible, no good, very bad day? Anybody with me on that? That when things really go sour, you want to actually pray for a lot of rough stuff to happen to them. But Nehemiah's prayer. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. You see what he does in his prayer? The first thing he does is he reaches out in praise and adoration to the king of heaven. He knows that the wall has been destroyed. He knows that his city is in turmoil and desolation and he praises and worships God. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love to those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servant, the people of Israel. He worships and adores God and then he says, God, would you listen to me? Would you see what is going on? Now we understand that we don't have to ask God to listen and ask God to see in order for him to do so. But the response of Nehemiah is nestling in close to God and saying, God, I love you, I worship you, you are in charge of everything. Now please hear and see what's going on. And you know what the first thing he wants to see and hear? I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. You see what his first part of his prayer is, worship and adoration. And then he quickly gets to this issue of confession. And he says to God, it's their fault. It's everybody else's fault except me. Is is that what he says? That isn't what he says, is it? But again, if I were to put myself in Nehemiah's shoes, and I hear that my city has been ransacked and it's in desolation, and I know the promises and the statements of God, that if we turn our back on him, he will remove his power and his presence and his blessing from us. And I first would like to start to look around and blame some people. It's got to be those people's fault. And I might even pray for them, Lord, forgive the sins of my friends, forgive the sins of my leaders because they've turned their back. But look at what he says. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, have committed. What a wonderful, humble prayer that is. And can I encourage you that even in the middle of life falling apart and the walls that you have seen built up and the blessings that were there, when those things seem to dissipate, remember to worship and honor and praise God. And remember to openly be humble and confess before him. But the promise to Moses continues... But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen 
as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah is reminding himself and reminding God as if God needs any reminder that God is God of his word. He worships, he honors, he humbles himself and confesses before God. And then he enters into this wonderful reminder of the contractual agreement that God has with his people. And isn't that exactly what God is in the process of doing in Nehemiah's life at this time? He's already bringing exiles back from Babylon. The trip has already been made. Nehemiah wasn't the very first of the ones to go, and yet God is active But how many times is God active in our lives and we, in fact, sometimes don't see it? And the reminder that Nehemiah has for himself is that God is a God of promise. God is active even when we don't see. So he pleads for God's attention. He worships God. He confesses and he requests favor. So he's talking to God and saying, I'm going to go and talk to this king and I'm going to ask him for a favor and Lord, I need your help. The very end of verse 11, he says, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And so he goes to the king. Chapter two, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, When wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. And so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I would love to have hung around with Nehemiah. Sounds like a really awesome guy. You know why I think that? Because every time he went into the king, he always seemed to be a happy guy. Do you know those people? People that always seem to generally be happy, and then you know something is going on. Because that person that normally has a genuine happiness in their face, and this time they don't. Even the king recognized something was going on with Nehemiah. He normally is happy. His spirits are normally up. And the king says, "Uh, you're a little off today, Nehemiah. But understand that being a little off in the presence of your friends might elicit, uh, hey, what's going on? But in the presence of the king, when you are the cupbearer to the king... Being a little off could actually mean your death because kings were sort of like that. And so that's why Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. He wasn't afraid because he didn't want to open himself up to the king. He wasn't afraid because he didn't know whether the king was going to care if he was happy or sad. He was afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it that you want? What a great question a king could ask somebody who was hurting. But also, what a great opportunity for Nehemiah to do what he does so instinctively next. Part of verse four says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. Before he even answered the king, he prayed. Remember I said there are about seven of these crucial prayers where Nehemiah positions himself in front of God and says, before I answer, before I ask, before I speak, before I act, I need to pray. Then I prayed to the God of heaven 
And then I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so I can rebuild it. And then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me, and so I set a time. And because he had prayed, and because he had had the ear of God and the attention of the Lord, he says, and I also said to him, this is the bigger ask, sort of, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I ask for a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Not only can I go, but can I also kind of have some stuff to help me rebuild the wall? Now, he's talking to the king. He's not just talking to some friend. He's not just talking to some merchant where he's making this kind of arrangement. He's asking the king... Not only can I go help rebuild the wall, but can you also provide me with some resources? And Nehemiah says to us, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. In the middle of ruin, in the middle of this terrible weeping and mourning that he had for his city, Nehemiah decided he was going to ask a big thing. Can I go and help rebuild? And can I have resources? And the reason why he was able to ask the big ask was because he had spent time in prayer and fasting in the presence of God and because he knew that the hand of God was upon him. And so had it been that easy, the next line would have just simply said, and the wall was rebuilt and everything was awesome. But this is not the Lego movie. Is the song going to be hit in your head now? Everything is awesome. Yeah, so I want you to be singing that song the rest of the service. Because with Nehemiah, everything wasn't awesome. And very quickly, we see in verse 10, when Sanballat the Heronite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. You know, so these guys were in the neighborhood. These guys had a lot to lose if Jerusalem got strong again. And you would think that if the hand of God was upon him and Nehemiah had prayed and heard from God and everything was going to just be so amazing that there would be no resistance. But in fact, time and time and time again, there is resistance. And Nehemiah in verse 11 of chapter 2 says, So I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anybody what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And he continues to go around the wall, and he inspects it. He inspects all the places. He sees all the stuff that needs to be done. And I'm sure that he's sitting there writing on his iPad, getting everything listed. How many timbers, how many bricks, how much work he's going to have to do. And he goes around and around trying to inspect and make sure that things are lined up. And then in verse 17, when he's done his inspection, he says to them, you see the trouble we are in. 
Jerusalem lies in ruin, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me, and they replied, let us start building. And so they began the good work. And so he talked to the Jewish people that were there and he said, we can do this thing. And can I tell you that in the middle of turmoil, in the middle of times when you see your walls and your city in which God, that God has built inside of you and the things that you see as blessings, when sometimes those things begin to crumble, can you gather people around you who speak truth into your life? Do you know what we normally do when life kind of takes a sour turn? I want to sometimes just hang around some other sour people. Misery loves what? Misery loves company. And when things go sour, we sometimes, instead of going where we should go to people who will encourage us and help us to move forward in our faith, we hang around the sour pusses that just make everything look worse than it really is. Why do we do that? Nehemiah is trying to teach the people, we can do this thing. This can be done. Let me encourage you. I understand that it looks terrible. I understand that our city is in desolation. I understand that the walls are knocked down. I understand that we are in disgrace. But God's hand is on us. And all hope is not gone. Can I challenge you this week? Even before your walls crumble, and if they're crumbling now, even now, find somebody who will speak hope and joy into your life. Find somebody who will come alongside of you and help you to see things for what they could be instead of what they are. Because Nehemiah has this beautiful ability because of the blessing of God to see beyond the ruin of the walls and to see a city that is rebuilt. But then there's that Sanballat again. Verse 19, but when Sanballat the Heronite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem, they've added some more negative people now, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked? Are you rebelling against the king? Let me tell you that even after you surround yourself with people who are going to speak truth, there are still other voices out there. We as Christians need to lean into the filter that God would have for us. And let me tell you, there are voices that want to speak into your life that God does not want you to listen to. There are voices that can speak negativity and ruin. And if you listen to them over and over again, you will be won over to the dark side. I don't know what it is about we as humans, but we so easily crave the energy that the negative provides. And it is a horrible, sucking energy that leaves us empty and depleted. And you're going to see it here in a moment. That even those with the best of intentions end up depleted emotionally because of the other voices that are around. 
This Sanballat guy tries over and over and over again. He tries because he's disturbed to stop it. He tries now to mock and say, what are you doing? You're trying to rebel against the king? And in verse 20, can we memorize Nehemiah's response? And I answered them. I answered my enemies. I I answered my mockers by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. He's looking at his enemy and saying, who do you think you are? Why are you trying to speak negativity into my life? Why are you trying to stop? You have no stake in this. This is not your place. Get out. There is an enemy that wants to speak lies to you. And as Pastor Matt said earlier, when the presence of God comes in our lives, the enemy has to flee. In fact, the Bible says that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. But the devil wants so strongly to speak negative things into your life, to have you believe the negative over the positive, to have you look at the negative instead of the positive. And if he can do that, the victory is his. Do you remember Peter on the in the boat and Jesus on the shore and he says, Jesus, if that's you, compel me to come see you. And, and so Jesus says, hey, it's me, come on out. And Peter jumps out of the boat onto the water and is walking across the water until he realizes he's walking across water. And I love what scripture says. It says that when Peter looked down and saw the waves, when he saw the water, That's when down he went. And then Jesus reaches out and grabs him and pulls him up. There's so much amazing truth in that little nugget. With God, even impossible things are possible. With God, we can walk on water. With God, the problems that are still there do not have to have hold over us. But when we take our eyes off Jesus and we put our eyes on our troubles, that is when everything seems to go south. But even then, Jesus didn't just say, oh, Peter, man, that's really too bad. I wish that you trusted me more. Good luck with that. (laughs) Jesus reaches down and grabs Peter and pulls him up. And can I confess to you today, There have been many times in my faith where God has had to reach down and grab me and pull me back up. Because unlike Nehemiah, there have been multiple times when the troubles have overshadowed the presence of God. And it's all about perspective. And if we allow the troubles, which are still there and they're legitimate, the wall was destroyed, the gates were burned, but God had bigger plans. And so Nehemiah looks at his mockers and says, I don't have to answer you. You have no stake in this. So they begin to rebuild the wall. And as they begin to build the wall, in chapter three, I'm not gonna kind of bore you with all of the names and all of this who built what, when, and where But this 
Chapter three goes section by section by section and declares who built this much and then someone else built this much and then someone else built this much and there's some amazing leadership stuff in here but that's not what this message is about. But I did notice a few things as I was looking at this list. They specifically list some of the occupations of some of the people who were building. They were priests and shepherds and rulers and goldsmiths and perfume makers and sons and daughters and merchants who were rebuilding this wall. I'd love to go to the perfume makers section. I bet it smelled awesome. <laughs> Not so much the shepherds section. Maybe the goldsmith section had it all ornate and beautiful. Some of the workers didn't really want to do too much. In verse 3, it says, The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulder to the work under the supervisors. Just a little side note. As they were working along, some of them were a little lazy. But then of note, a little bit later in verse 20, next to him, Barak, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section. Let me tell you, there are going to be times in our lives when there are going to be people that don't pull their weight and other people that do a whole lot more. Which one are you going to be? In the middle of life, when life happens and the day in and the day out, sometimes mundane, sometimes exciting, sometimes terrifying, which one are you going to be? Are you going to be the noble that can't be bothered to put their shoulder to the work? Are you going to be one who is known as zealously trying to accomplish what God wants to accomplish? You see, it may surprise you, but the work of God that happens here is not all on my shoulders. Some of you are completely shocked. Some of you are just like, really? I was at a funeral yesterday, Pat Tebow's dad passed away and I was at a funeral yesterday and I sat next to uh, a lady at, at the back and, and she, I, I wanted to sit on the outside and, and, and she said, that's fine, you can sit there. She said, but I'm going to have to kind of go back and forth because I'm the one that tells everybody where they're supposed to be when. And, and just as the service was just about to begin, I don't know why she leaned into me, but maybe she just wanted to give me a story for today. She leaned in and she said, before I had this volunteer position, I thought everything just happened by magic here. And she was helping the priest be where the priest needed to be, making sure that the wine was where it was supposed to be and the bread was supposed to be and make sure the incense is where it's supposed to be. Everything that all lined up, she was the one. And so I said, oh, you're like second in command. She said, oh, no, no, no. A humble servant who jokingly says, I thought everything just happened by magic here. Can I tell you that the work of this church doesn't just happen by magic? And every single one of you are a part of rebuilding the wall at Journey. Now, this message is about our own personal walls and the collapses that are there, but I also believe that this message is a broader spectrum that says it's about the work of God. It's about what God is doing when we see it and when we don't. And every one of us are a part of what goes on here. I believe that God has a ministry for each one of us. And I think that he's going to find it 
Help us find it through the understanding of our passions. I've been meeting with some of you in your homes and I want to get in as many as possible. So when Joni calls and says, hey, can I come and visit? Can, can Matt come and visit? Just say, yeah, sure. Whenever that is, we'd love to have that happen. And if you think of it, call her first and then help her fill my calendar up. But the conversation I've been having lately has been an exciting conversation. I'm asking a few questions very deliberately. What are you passionate about? What is it that you are passionate about? What is it that kind of wakes you up in the middle of the night and you think, oh, I just am so excited about whatever it is? And then the next question is, are you serving the kingdom of God in your area of passion? Are you actually serving God where you're passionate? And if not, how can we help make that happen? I've had some amazing conversations. You see, we're rebuilding walls. And we're doing the work of God. And we have a legitimate enemy that wants to tear down the wall just as fast as we build it up. Some of us are tempted to not want to put our shoulder to the wall. But I believe that all of us need to be zealously repairing the sections that God has placed in our path. So in chapter 4, we keep going this back and forth, passion and resistance. Look at chapter 4 of Nehemiah. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Well, you notice he was, he was disturbed before. He was mocking, and now he's angry and incensed. And he ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring back the stones to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? And then Tobiah, he jumps in as well. And he says, what they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Have you ever had anybody try to tell you that you're nothing? Have you had anybody try to tell you that the walls that God is beginning to build and the city that God is beginning to build in you, his plan, his purpose, his presence is nothing? You won't amount to anything. This faith that you have is feeble and it's useless. You're trusting in this God He's not worth trusting in. And there are many ways that that message can come our way. When I was a little boy, I don't remember this event. I remember the story. And I've told this to you before. We were at Beulah Camp, and someone had a Doberman pincer that was sort of running around the campground. And so my mother told me to be careful, and I was probably five or six years old. And she says that I looked right at her and said, Mom, don't you worry about it. If that dog comes anywhere near me, I'll kick it right in the teeth. <laughs> and so how do you think my natural response would be if Sambalat and Tobiah came and began to mock me and say, you feeble Jew, what are you thinking you're doing? This wall that you're creating, even if a fox jumped on it, the wall would crumble. You're nothing and you will not amount 
to anything. My natural response would be to kick him right in the teeth. (laughs) But Nehemiah's response was to have one of those significant moments of prayer. Verse 4 of chapter 4, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Now, he's at least human, which I love the next part. Turn their insults back on their own heads and give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Don't cover up their guilt and blot out their sin from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So at least he's a little human, right? But his first response is to go to God and say, God, I need, I need your help. And when we are trying to establish what we feel God is asking us to build in our own heart, and when life seems to kind of go up and down to crumble or blessing in one extreme or the other or somewhere in between, an opposition begins to rise. We want to go to prayer. Verse 6 says, So we rebuilt the wall until it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Don't you just love that? Nehemiah, through the power of God and through the reminding of the blessing of God that was on the people, was able to see this wall which was crumbled and in ruin up to half its height because the people worked with all their heart, because they got together for a common goal and they worked at that common goal. Can you imagine what could happen at the ministry level at Journey and outside of these walls if we as a people All of us decided to work with all of our heart. Now understand, this message is not about trying to get a bunch of worker bees. I don't have a list of of ministry openings that I'm hoping that you will sign up at the table at the end of the day. To each of us, what area of the kingdom of God is he asking you to rebuild? What area of the kingdom of God is he asking you to serve in? And what are you willing to do for him? In verse 7, but Simbalit, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod. Did you see what's happening here? It was just Sanballat and Tobiah earlier. This group of opposition is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. As the wall is growing stronger, as the wall is getting taller, the opposition is getting bigger. When they heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead, and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So now it's actually turned to threats. Before it was kind of mocking, before it was just it was words, but now they're saying, we are going to come and attack you. Your wall is getting too tall. Your wall is getting too strong. What you're doing is working. Now Israel was becoming a threat. Judah was becoming a threat. The Jews were becoming a threat to the people around them. And just like Satan does when he is threatened by the work of God, they raise their ugly head. And once again, as Nehemiah is the person of character that we've come to know him to be, in verse 9, but we prayed to our God and we posted a guard night and day to meet this threat. Again, his response to an ever-increasing threat 
and negativity and opposition to what God wanted him to do, his response was, once again, to go to prayer. Are you seeing a consistency in life? Can I ask you this question? When trouble comes your way, how often is it that your first response is to go to prayer? When your wall and your city is challenged, when life isn't going the way you want it to go, even if it's a momentary thing or something that's been brewing for a long time, what is your response? I can tell you that because I am a Mr. Fix-It beyond compare, this thing I have to fight. Because my natural response is not to go to prayer. My natural response is to list the 10 things I can do to fix this thing. And this week, God has reminded me again what I want you to do is I want you to settle down and I want you to talk to me first. I wonder how many times I could have been saved from stupid reactions and stupid actions if I had just talked to God first. Anybody else willing to confess that if they had just Talk to God first. Maybe life decisions would have been a little different. And so you would think again that because of this prayer response to all the negativity, Nehemiah would be an easy street. But something else terribly sad happens. Meanwhile, in verse 10, the people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them. We will put an end to the work. Do you ever get in what you're doing? Do you ever get tired of life? Do you ever get tired as you're just struggling and struggling and struggling to do what you know is right? People of Judah began to look around and they were getting tired. They had been working hard with their whole heart, it said just a few verses earlier. And now their complaint is, we're just getting so tired, Nehemiah. Our hands are cracking and, and I've got calluses on my calluses and I've got cracks on my cracks and, and, and it just... I just can't, I don't know if I can do it anymore, Nehemiah. And besides that, look at all the rubble. Like, it just, there's just so much stuff. And in order to rebuild the wall there, we've got to move this mound of dirt and rocks. And I just, I don't know if we can do it. And, and besides that, Nehemiah, the enemy is coming. And they've told us that before you even realize it, I will be there and I'm going to get you. And Peter looked at the water. And instead of striding across the top of it toward Jesus, down he went. And can I encourage you today that there might very well be rubble and you might very well be tired and there might very well be enemies that are trying to challenge what God wants to do in your life. But the hand of God that picked Jesus up or picked uh, Peter up and brought him out of the water, that hand of Jesus is there for you and for me. And so Nehemiah, just like Nehemiah, the end of 14 says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. He is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. 
And then in verse 20, our God will fight you. Nehemiah says this fight isn't your fight all alone. Yes, you're tired, but God is strong. Yes, you're weak, but God is there and his presence will strengthen you. Lean in on God. When you're tired and the rubble is there and your enemy is real, that is the time not to give up, but to lean into God even stronger. Chapter 6 is filled with further opposition and filled with further prayers. And I won't uh, repeat it all because you can go, it'll be part of your homework is to go and and read that. But in chapter 6, verse 9, Nehemiah says, But I prayed, now strengthen my hand. And then in verse 14 of chapter 6, he prays again, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat. O my God, as of what they have done, remember also the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. He prays again as opposition increases. And what I find amazing is after all of that, there's this tiny little verse, verse 15. Like I think verse 15 really should be like 18 pages long, but this is what it says. So the wall was completed on the 12th day of Elul in 52 days. All of what I just shared with you happened in 52 days. Seems like it was 52 years, doesn't it? And can I tell you that sometimes the struggles that you are currently in, those struggles that repeat, those struggles that come back and forth, that you get victory over and then all of a sudden opposition is there once more, those things that you think are striding forward and then you take two steps forward, but you end up taking three steps back and it seems like eternity. I'm going to tell you that God is there all the while. He's never missed a step. And in fact, in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, the very end of that verse It says, God calls things that are not as though. They are. That's the God that we serve. We serve a God that can take things that you look at and you can see them from a certain perspective. These last several weeks, we've been calling that the lower story. Remember that? The lower story, the day in and day out life. When we see things so disconnected, we see things as they are in our own perspective, but there also is an upper story, which is how God sees the same events, and he is working in ways that we cannot even imagine. So through the lens of Nehemiah, can I encourage you today? I don't know what wall there is in your life that you feel is threatened. I don't know what building in your life your feeling is opposition in. But can I encourage you that God is there and God has a plan and God has a purpose. And if we can learn one thing from Nehemiah, it is talk to God first. If we could learn two things from Nehemiah, it would be talk to God first and then act on God's behalf, not our own. Let's pray together.